0: We are going to continue this morning our Revelation series. So we're spending this school year going through the book of Revelation. And this is our third week. And we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, which uh, Rob read for us here a few minutes ago. Before we dive into that, I just want to review last week. So last week at the end, we looked at the second half of one, and we saw that John, uh, week one, we saw kind of the situation John was in, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He had been sent there due to his fervent uh, commitment to Christ. He was serving in a prophetic role amongst the churches there in the Asian province, and he's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's over 90 years old. He's in a very difficult situation, humbled before the Lord, and the Lord reveals himself in glory to John. And so last week, we looked at the glorified Christ, and we saw Christ with his hair white like snow, reflecting his just His perfect wisdom and his eyes like fire, that he knows us and he sees through all of our false versions of ourselves and his feet like bronze, that he has walked through the furnace that is this earth, but he has come forth unfazed and perfect. And yet the magnificent to behold Christ is gracious to John. And he speaks to John, and he shows that he has a a love for his church, that he walks among the lampstands that reflect the churches there in that province. And so the God of the universe loves his church And the Lord has instruction for His church, and that's where we're going to step into today. Today we're going to see His specific word to the church in Ephesus, and ultimately to us. He has a specific word for the church to reveal through John, who has been sent to minister to the church, and He has graciously prepared John to hear the word that He has for him. He's prepared John in two ways. Number one, as we talked about a great deal last week, He has prepared John through suffering. That for the Christian, suffering, as we talked about last week, is not to be avoided, but it's the grace of God. That Romans tells us that for us who are his, all things are working to conform us to the image of Christ. All of the difficulties of this life are not a void of meaning for the Christian, but they are posturing us to see God rightly and to cling to the things that are eternal. He's been preparing John through suffering for a rightful view of Christ. Seeing our adorning Savior clearly gives us confidence to heed His instruction. Even when it might be difficult, even when the instruction of Jesus would cost us everything, we will only respond to the call to give up everything if we see Jesus as He rightfully is. The call of our lives is always costly. It's a call to come and die. And Jesus is never shy about this with the disciples. There is, there is uh, you know, no um, prosperity gospel to the preaching of Jesus. It's come take up your cross, leave everything behind and follow me. And we can only step forward in obedience to that call if we see all in light of his majesty. If everything else in this life pales in comparison to the majesty of Christ. This is the difference between a couple of knucklehead fishermen and the rich young ruler is they saw Christ lightly and all else paled in comparison. And make no mistake this morning, Christ loves his church. And verse one of this text reminds us of what we saw last week. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We saw last week that the seven golden lampstands reflect the seven churches that are being addressed here in Revelation. And that Christ doesn't stand above the lampstands, but He says as He holds them in His right hand, that He he holds the seven stars, He walks among the lampstands. Christ holds His church in His strong right hand. That in Him, all that may come, the afflictions of this world, do not separate us, from the love of Him, and not only does He protect His church and hold her in His right hand, so that the gates of hell may not prevail against it, but He walks to, walks amongst His church. That the man that the man John saw was in the midst of the landstands. That Jesus is in our midst. He is not detached from us. He is not unaware of what we go through. We are, can I just say, like if you're on, I don't know, if you're on any kind of like social media right now especially if you follow like any kind, if you're involved in any kind of christian twitter or anything like that it is a weird time to be the church in america like it's, i don't even have a better description for it right now there's just a lot of weirdness going on and people are divided over all kinds of things and it's a difficult time to be the church might we remember christ is in our midst he is not detached from what is happening he is not unaware he is not surprised But he is working all things for our good. And so this morning, as we look at the church in Ephesus and his specific word to them, I want to pray for our time, and then we'll talk a little bit about the church in Ephesus and where they're at. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love for your people and your faithfulness to your church. Lord, each person who sits in this room here today is a testament to your faithfulness that all of the efforts from the evil one and from all who would follow after him to stop the progress of your church have proved insufficient. You hold your church in your right hand. You walk amongst us. Your will will go forward and will not be stopped. Might we have confidence in that this morning? And might we live accordingly? And would this be so by the power of your word? Would you hide me behind your cross this morning? And would your gospel go forth? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesus is the first of the seven churches that's addressed specifically. We saw that the seven churches that John served in in a prophetic role, sharing the word of God, are listed counterclockwise in proximity to where they are. And it starts with Ephesus. Ephesus was an influential city in the first century. It had great influence both politically and it was also a commercial center of the region. And the great city was perhaps most famous, though, world famous for its, as, a, as a kind of a cultural economic center. It was home to the notable temple of Diana, a fertility goddess who was worshipped through sexual immorality. And this tremendous temple to Diana in Ephesus was regarded as one of the seven wonders of the world. It was supported by 127 pillars, and each pillar was 60 feet tall. And it was adorned with great sculptures. Ephesus was a city that had great influence, and right or wrong, mostly for the worst, culture flowed from Ephesus to the region. And this is why so much emphasis had went into planting the church in Ephesus. Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla, they founded the church at Ephesus. We see that, you can read about that in Acts 18 and 19. Paul worked for two years to get this church started and to get it off the ground planting this work. And the task of planting this church was a weighty one. It was met with a great deal of resistance that you can read about through the book of Acts. But Paul cared for this church a great deal because he knew the importance it would have in that region. He met with the elders in Acts 20 and he even wrote a letter regarding the church while he was in prison and the church had an impressive history to go with its important its significance as to where it was located both or all three Paul Timothy and now scripture indicates most recently John had all spent seasons ministering to this church in Ephesus however many of the folks that had been there when the church began are no longer the folks that are there now this is a second generation church And it's a second-generation church that seems to be living off of the glory days of the past. I mean, you think about like when they recall, like, who's ministered there? I mean, this church has a lot to boast of. Paul was here, then his disciple Timothy came for a season, and now the apostle John is ultimately helping shepherd this body. They really clung to and had much to boast then. And Jesus acknowledges there are many great things about this church, In his graciousness, we see in verses 2, 3, and 6 that Jesus acknowledges what pleases him. In verse 2, we see Jesus says this regarding the church in Ephesus, "'I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who, who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false.'" Jesus is pleased with the good things that are happening in the church because the church was doing a lot of good things. They desired to be active and they were engaged in this community where they had been about. They did many great works and they wanted to be involved. And they didn't, they weren't just involved in the city where God had strategically put them, but they invested in their members and leaders. It said they tested those. Many churches will, will just we just want as many people in a room as possible, but God calls us to something different. Like we want to take installation of leaders seriously, we take membership seriously, we take the ordinances seriously because we want to test. We, we want to test those who are following Jesus. That we might hold things rightly and hold our awareness and knowledge of Scripture correctly. And the church did this. And they had toiled to the point of exhaustion, yet they endured. And they worked hard for the Lord. And Jesus acknowledges that they had godly endurance. Patience, as it's spoken here, is the great is the ancient Greek word, which means steadfast endurance. And in this sense, the church in Ephesus was solid. They had grit, and they wouldn't let go, and they didn't give up when many others could have. And Jesus in verse 3, he says, I know you are enduring patiently, and you're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. They were dedicated to what they were doing, and they were enduring with patience. The Ephesian church continued to do these things and they showed a godly perseverance that we should seek to imitate. They didn't give up. They continued to dig in and to serve faithfully. And in verse 2 and in verse 6, we see, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans. Ultimately, in verse 2 and 6, we see that Jesus is also pleased with the sound doctrine of the church that the the church took a strong stance on right theology. They sought to be both orthodox and evangelistic. And this is a rare and difficult combination in the history of the church. We tend to drift one way or another. We either hold rightly what it is to show reverence to the Lord, and we cling to that, and that becomes kind of our ultimate above all. Or we seek mission at all costs, and we kind of disregard all of that because it's just about whatever we have to do to get people in the door. But I believe that Scripture calls us to hold both of these things that we want to revere God rightly in corporate worship, holding to sound theology, but we also, we leave this place as those who have sent to be missionaries in the place God calls us. And by all accounts, the church in Ephesus seemed to be balancing many of those things. The Nicolaitans, Jesus addresses, he points out, are an interesting group. Nicholas came from Antioch, and he was described in Acts as a convert to Judaism, Nicholas was one of the first seven deacons who was appointed as a deacon by the apostles in Acts 6. Yet history tells us that he is also the one from whom this religious sect that Jesus mentions multiple times in Revelation has taken its name. And this is an important historical detail for two reasons. Number one, leaders must be watched closely, they are not above sin. No leader, no pastor, nobody is exempt from this reality and is not capable of tanking everything in a terrible, flaming way. Like Judas, just because Nicholas had been given an important role in the church, it did not prevent him from being led astray and from caving in to his own ego. When leader, number two, when leaders stray, it does incredible damage. This is why leaders of God's people are warned that they will be held accountable, and it's why responsibility for God's people should not be taken lightly. Nicholas was not remembered fondly by early church writers. According to to Irenaeus, he says this, The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas who was one of the seven first ordained by the apostles. They led lives of unrestrained indulgence. The character of these men is plainly pointed out in the Apocalypse of John as teaching that it is a matter of indifference to practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So the Nicolaitans, in the midst of a culture and a region where you just do what feels good to you and embrace that which the world embraces, The Nicolaitans had kind of embraced that. Like, we don't know a ton of details about this religious sect, but we know that Jesus hates what they do. And he acknowledges to the church in Ephesus, thank you, like you did right to to stand apart from them and to hold the truth in the midst of others who did. Hippolytus writes that Nicholas inspired the sect through his indifference to life and the pleasure of the flesh. And his followers took this as a license to give in to lust. And that's what they were known for. It's clear through the references to this group in Revelation that they had an impact on local believers. We will see them mentioned in the addresses to the other local churches as well. This is the the group of the day that is influencing all of the local churches, both towards immorality and idolatry. We see that Jesus values standing against immorality. As the body of Christ, we must hold one another accountable to holy living. Acting in a way that violates scripture cannot be tolerated, thus we give way to license. But we also must resist the temptation towards idolatry. As the body of Christ, we cannot give our worship to anything else other than Christ himself. No object, no person or idea is to be the focus of our praise. And this leads us to legalism. And the Nicolaitans reflected both. In summary, by by all outward appearances, the church in Ephesus was a solid church that worked hard, had great outreach, and protected the integrity of the gospel. But in verse 4, Jesus addresses that which he has against them. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Firstly, I want us to just take a moment to consider the weight of this statement, but this I have against you. When you are convicted by the Spirit, might we rightly understand that the God of the universe is offended and is calling you to repentance? Secondly, I want you to take a moment to feel the weight of this. This church looked healthy. It had sound doctrine. And for the most part, the lifestyles of its members were in line with their confession. Yet none of this was rooted in a love for Jesus. This church did not have a head problem. It had a heart problem. The message message translates this verse You walked away from your first love. Why? In Osborne's commentary, he writes, they had lost the first flush of enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life and had settled into a cold orthodoxy with more surface strength than depth. In the beginning, the church had been motivated by a devout love for Jesus and his gospel. Now, though, they were just going through the motions. Their enthusiasm had waned as all that they did just became duty. I want you to imagine, if you will, the married couple that are living together. They're faithful to one another. They're doing a good job of raising kids together. They're involved in their community together. They're kind to one another. But there's something that they haven't really talked about or or addressed. And that's the reality that they haven't really they haven't really clung to or acknowledged their love for one another in some time. And maybe they've kind of just become okay with that at first. Maybe it bothered them both, but now they've just kind of got stuck in the rhythms of life and they just don't really talk about it or address it. And over time that rift becomes bigger. And then all of a sudden, one day there are no kids to take care of together. And that that, that ritual that we had goes away and we're kind of left with just us. And, for those of us who are in Jesus, like we would counsel that couple. We would point that out in them. Your, your, your relationship, your family started because of your love for one another. And that needs to be rekindled and renewed and fought for. And there are seasons when we have to stop and acknowledge that that's, there's a distance. And that distance needs to be gaffed. And that's in Paul himself, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave everything else up for her. Then we would acknowledge rightly that nothing comes before that. Not children, not duty, not home, not work. Nothing comes above a husband's love for his bride. And so there are times we have to repent and acknowledge that and commit to a season of that being renewed and restored. That's the same picture we see of the church in Ephesus. They are the bride that has doing all of the things, the faithful bride, but they've lost love for the groom. It's no longer motivated by love for him. It's like if my wife, if I bring my wife flowers and, I was, and it's, hey, you, you, you asked me for this. I, I brought them to you. I heard you mention you wanted flowers. I guess it's technically our anniversary. Here's some flowers. Like I met the obligation. I met the duty on paper. I checked the box, but I did nothing because it wasn't motivated by love for her. And so that act that is good on paper is void of that which gives real meaning. And this can be the church. We can turn anything into legalism void of the love of Christ. And the good news for us is that while the bride's love had waned, Christ's had not. And that is what Revelation is about. James chapter 4, verse 5 Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Jesus yearns jealously for his bride. Christ's honesty with his church is reflective of his love for her, that he's acknowledging the elephant in the room. They're not just going to go on living in, in, in separate lives in the same house. He comes to the church and he says this this, is, this must change. He has not love lost His passion. His love for you has not changed. He is jealous for His bride. Christ stands in holiness that we might adore Him, but He put on flesh that we might dwell with Him. That He is apart from us in His majesty, but He has made us His in Jesus. That the good news of the gospel is that God gave His only Son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there's no longer condemnation for those who are His, but everlasting joy in Jesus. Christian, your relationship with Jesus will begin to change when you know and embrace the truth that He is head over heels in love with you. Yes, our holy God is pleased with our good deeds. But the, in, in, the incarnation is evidence that his love was not based on our good deeds. My child's school has started back in session. And uh, we have a variance, man. In our house, grades, they can kind of ebb and flow, man. It just depends on that week how motivated we are to do well. And so there are times where my children bring home homework and it's, man, this, we, we can do better. Like, you can do better than this. And there are other times that they can bring home homework, and I'm just, like, thrilled. That's going on the fridge. That's great. But none of those things change my love for them. My love is not, does not ebb and flow by your grades. My love for you is rooted in the fact that you're mine, that you're heirs to everything that I have, that I've adopted and made you mine. I acknowledge the good deeds are great, but our love is, not dep- love is not dependent on that. And so, to an eternal degree greater, is the Father's love for us. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is one you are familiar with, so I won't read it, but I'll refer to it, summarize. And my favorite story in Scripture is the story of the prodigal son. But I also think it's one of the misunderstood, most misunderstood stories in Scripture. In the story, we see the son who begins to grow weary of life at home with the father. And he desires to go and do his own thing. And so he comes to the father and he asks if he could have his inheritance in advance. And the father reluctantly, knowing it's not what's best for him, he grants it. And the son goes and he lives a life of doing everything under the sun that his heart desires, and quickly the wealth is gone, and he finds himself serving as a servant eating food that was intended for livestock, and he remembers, he recalls memories of, man, back at dad's, dad's servants lived better than this. They were more well-fed than I am. Perhaps I can go back to dad, and if I beg him, he'll hire me, he'll have pity on me and allow me to be a servant, and so he goes back, And we see that before he even gets to the doorstep, the father runs to him, runs to him, embraces him, puts a ring on his finger and a cloak around his shoulders. And he has the the fattened calf slaughtered to celebrate the return of the son. And when we read about this story, we tend to always hear about it in Sunday school as if it's about the misdeeds of the son, as if the son repenting and coming home, like if that's the point. But the story of the prodigal son has far more to do with the character of the loving father who adores him, the father would have been incredibly gracious to allow the son to come be a servant, to simply on paper, forgive him. That would have been an incredible act of mercy to a son who embarrassed him so. But the father doesn't hire him as a serpent, as a servant. He welcomes him into the home. he gives him so much more, he restores his heirness. And meanwhile, the older son stands outside and the story ends with the older son, the faithful son, the son who had been doing good deeds, but void of a love for the father. He's left on the outside while the younger son is in the feast with the father. In the older son, we see a picture of the church in Ephesus, one who felt they had earned something based solely on their obedience, but an obedience that was void of relationship with the father void of love for him for the other son his service to the father had become dutiful had become duty he was plodding along void of relationship with the father he had forgotten what the father had done for him well for the younger son what the father had done for him had never met meant so much in his life this is the church at Ephesus and our gracious God provides here in this text a loving correction. Verse 5 says this, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says to his church lovingly, he gives them, He doesn't leave them to figure it out. He gives them a correction. Remember from where you have fallen. Don't forget where you are, Christian. And don't forget from where he has brought you. Who were you before Christ? It would do you well to remember such often. I like to consider often the reality of who I know I would be void of Christ. The present imperative form of this verb indicates that what he is saying is keep on remembering, look back. When did things change for you? When did love, loving communion, become dutiful service? Identify this. When did when where? Maybe it was just months ago. Maybe it was years ago. But when did your relationship go from being in awe of the gospel of the Lord who saved you to becoming just duty? to check boxes. When did that happen? Take time. Let all else fade away. Meet with Jesus and just consider that question. Identify when that happened and then repent, Jesus says. Turn from that. Acknowledge it. Run from it. He's calling the church to repent. He's reminding them that labor is no substitute for love. All of the work we can do means nothing void of an actual love, growing love for Jesus, communing from him, being with him, accepting his invitation to meet him beside still waters, that our love might be, for him might be rekindled often by the good news of the gospel. Labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. The older son lived a good life. He followed all the rules. And just like the younger son, he tried to control the father. The younger son tried to control the father by getting his and leaving. The older son tried to control the father because if he met all the rules, then the father owed him something. And the father owed him nothing. He owed him nothing. Purity is no substitute for passion for Jesus. And deeds are no substitute for devotion. Devotion. Regarding sins of indifference, our repentance is often to be aimed at a wrong view of thinking about God. And we need the gospel to correct our wayward hearts and ultimately our selfish deeds. Jesus encourages the church to return to where you fell in love. Christian, you were created for intimate communion with a creator who is head over heels in love with you. When God thinks of you, he delights. He is jealous for you. When you believe that God's view of you is primarily disappointed, focused on your sin, you begin to take that view of others, even believing that somehow focusing on the sins of others honors God. However, your good work does not increase the Father's love for you. And your failings do not decrease the Father's love for you. How different our discipleship would be if we truly believed that God loved us in such a way. The place where you first fell in love with Christ is the place where you first understood that He loved you. you we loved because He first loved us. And there was a day and there was a place when you, and maybe it was over a little period of time, there was a time in your life where for the first time you realized Jesus loved you. Not on the basis of what you deserve, but on the basis of what he did. And Jesus calls us to return to that place. And if we do so, as we close today, verse 7 gives us, Jesus gives us a loving promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of the garden, the paradise of God. To the one who conquers. This word is the Greek word, naiko, from which we get the word Nike. And it is a term indicating victory. Jesus offers victory to all seven churches. Even the smallest Weakest ones. Jesus offers victory, but the victory is in him. And it requires perseverance, dependent not on their strength, but on his strength. And he says for those who, who, who arrive at this place, who endure faithfully, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We talked about a few weeks ago. God is the beginning he's the creator and he's the end he's the one who all history culminates in his redemptive plan and here he brings everything full circle that what Adam and Eve lost through sin we regain in Christ that he is in this way he is indicating he is redeeming all things that the tree of life they 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 were offered stay away from this fast from this tree that you might feast with the Lord at the tree of life. They chose the lesser, but Jesus in his grace, he's inviting us back to the former. He's restoring all things. What Adam and Eve lost through sin, we have regained access to in Jesus because of his devout love for his church. Rooted church this morning, as we pray, I just want to charge you this week Today, remember from where you came and return to the love that you had at first. And might we do so each and every day. Might the gospel continue to remind us of such things. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your graciousness. God, if your love was dependent on my obedience, if it was dependent on my works, if it was dependent on my achievements, if it was dependent on all that I could control, I would surely have nothing to bring to you. I would have a pile of nothing. Yet, Lord, in your graciousness, you've made a way for me in Jesus. God, we will one day you you tell us and, and Revelation will remind us that we will all stand before you. We will answer the question of why we should be accepted into the kingdom. Lord, might we on that day and every day leading up to that day simply point to Jesus. You alone are our hope. Father, I pray that through your spirit, you might give us a right view of our hope. That you might allow us to see your glory and that we would forsake all else to be faithful to you. God, forgive us for turning your invitations to relationship into just dutiful check marks. We have to check off the box. God, our, our, hope, our hearts are are prone to control. We're we're prone to wanting to make our own way. Yet you ask us to let go of all of that and to cling to you as our hope. Lord, would you lead us beside still waters? Would you invite us into a deeper relationship that our motivations might be purely, perfectly rooted in a love for you? Would you make this so in us, in your time and in your way? I ask these things in your good name. Amen.